The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. I don't think John ever forgot a thing. He was one of the earliest of the 12 original disciples called to follow Jesus. And so he he tracked along with all of Jesus' earthly ministry. I don't think he ever forgot what he saw. The miracles of Jesus. John uses the term sign. That's how it's translated um, in, in our Bibles. And that's a great translation. If you understand by sign, he means it's the same word as a directional signpost, like, like an interstate arrow saying, if you want to get here, go there. And there are seven distinct miracles in the Gospel of John that John uses the language of signpost to describe. And though he wrote the Gospel of John decades after the events of which he was an eyewitness. I don't think he ever forgot. From the first of those, those seven distinct signpost miracles, which we'll encounter in John chapter two with the turning of water into wine at a wedding. To the seventh of them, the, the resurrection of Lazarus right before that initial Passion Week, the, the seventh signpost miracle, the miracle that, that put his power right in the face of the Jerusalem leadership and from an earthly viewpoint, sealed the determination of the Jewish leadership to see Jesus dead. No, I don't think John forgot a thing, no matter how many years went by. He didn't forget what he saw. He didn't forget what he heard. The, the declarations of Jesus. There's a characteristic of, of the, the language that Jesus would have used in his day-to-day -day conversations. <laughs> that when you, when you simply say a verb, and that verb is, is, is packaged, in the first person singular. And there are lots of different forms of verbs in the, in the Greek that Jesus would have spoken in his day-to-day -day language. When Jesus meant to simply say, or when anyone would say, for example, running. If you said that in the first person singular, you were understood to be saying, I am running. <clears throat> you didn't need the extra words. However, they were there. And seven times that John makes much of from the 
statement of Jesus, I am the bread of life, where he emphatically uses that language. To the sixth and seventh times, both of which occurred the night before the cross in Jesus' teaching, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. When Jesus used the emphatic form of I am to make those statements, no one listening to him would have missed that he was reaching back to the burning bush in the book of Exodus where the living God declared himself with the highest divine name, the greatest name God has for himself, I am. See, everything else in the universe depends upon something. No other existence in the universe is utterly non-dependent and self-contained except the existence of the I am. John never forgot that Jesus distinctly and repeatedly let his listeners know he was God. He was and is the great I am. John never forgot what he saw and he never forgot what he heard. He never forgot what he felt. That last Thursday night coming into the cross, our, our, um, our gospel of John, which God has given us, which John wrote later in life, is divided into 21 chapters. Five of those 21, nearly one-fourth of the gospel, is given to that one night in the life of Jesus, Thursday night coming into Friday morning. John didn't forget a bit of it. He didn't forget that as that night unfolded, late into the evening approaching midnight, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane knowing what he was about to face, the cross looming now just hours ahead. Jesus asked the three most intimate of his disciples, Peter and the brothers, James and John, not brothers of his biologically, but brothers to each other, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus asked them to stay awake and pray with him as he in prayer was stealing himself for what lie ahead. You ever been really, really sleepy but knew you had to stay awake? I'm not gonna accuse you of ever falling asleep behind the wheel, but I bet there have been times in your life on some long drive, maybe some long overnight drive that you've had to fight it a little. And maybe you rolled the window down, rolled the window down, I'm telling my age. Maybe you hit the switch and the window came down. As I understand it, we don't much roll windows down anymore. It's another turn of phrase that's gone to history. Maybe you lowered the window, turned the thermostat off. Maybe you stopped and got some coffee because you caught yourself struggling to stay awake. That Thursday night before the cross, John didn't have windows he could 
roll down or coffee he could grab. Just his Savior asking, can't you stay awake with me? John never forgot. He never forgot. You know, he was the only one of the 12. Judas Iscariot, of course, was gone by that time. Judas Iscariot committed suicide in the pre-dawn hours of the Friday Jesus died. So for a season, there were just 11. Of those 11, 10 of them scattered when Jesus was arrested. They hung close for a little while, but by the time we get to the trials and the cross, only, only John, only John stayed with Jesus all the way through. And only John, of all the disciples of Christ, those original disciples, only John was present at the cross. And in our Savior's last moments, Jesus' biological half-brothers had not yet come to faith in Christ. Not as of the cross. And so Jesus from the cross assigns to John, take care of my mom. To his mom, look to him to function as your son. John never forgot that. In fact, church history tradition tells us that, that John and Mary grew old together, living as mother and son in the city of Ephesus until John was the only one of the original disciples to die a natural death. And in his long life, he never forgot. I know he never forgot how his heart raced and his feet raced on that first Easter Sunday morning. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John writing about himself, just with a ton of humility. They came and they got Pete and they got me and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He was fast. I was just a shade faster. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Catch this. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, Me, says John, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. I think John is telling us that in that moment, in the entrance to that empty tomb cave, 
He was the first to see how it ultimately came together. He was the first to fully understand that in Jesus, death had been utterly defeated. So, decades later, the first of five New Testament books that, that John would write, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the amazing book of Revelation. But this Gospel of John, this first book that he would ever write, he accepted from God the Holy Spirit the assignment to write the most intimate and evangelistic of the Gospels. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, give us God's purpose in John writing the Gospel of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, when John picked up his pen to, to write this gospel, he begins by addressing this, this, this question, this matter, having forgotten nothing of what he had seen, heard, felt, and experienced. He wrote, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is God. And in those five verses, there are so many things being asserted, so many things being said, so many things we are reminded of. They already stood well proven by the time John wrote, but here we are 2,000 years later. And we have not seen with our eyes what John saw. We've not heard with our own ears what John heard. And so John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we may believe, puts forward at least four strategic things about Jesus that we would know and believe and find life. The first of these is his co-eternity with God the Father. The first couple of verses 
in the beginning was the word. Now it's another nuance of language that's, that's driven home well in English, but a click better in the original language. The verb tense behind that verb of being was. It cannot be understood to mean that Jesus had a beginning. It cannot be understood to be saying in the beginning Jesus came into existence. Not at all. The, the present tense of that verb in the original language implies steady state being in a continuous way. My Greek professor all those years ago said it like this. In the beginning was being the word. He was co-eternal with the Father. Unless you doubt what he's trying to tell you, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is co-eternal with the Father. And only another person of the Godhead, only one who is God himself, exists uncreated, fully formed at any version of what you and I would call the beginning. He had no beginning. As, as the lights come up on whatever understanding we would have, no matter how far back we'd look, when you get there, he was. He's God. Uh, a dilemma is when you face a difficult decision between two matters. Shall I do this or shall I do that? Shall I believe this or shall I believe that? That's a dilemma. It was the English theologian writer of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis. A lot of people know C.S. Lewis from things like the Chronicles of Narnia or the Screwtape Letters. Or, and if you've not read this one, you are depriving yourself of pleasure, mere Christianity. It was Lewis who first postulated what he called the trilemma. There are three significant options from which one must choose when one considers Jesus. Now, Lewis, being an Englishman, framed it like this. He said he's either quite bad or he's quite mad or he's quite God. Later, Americans would of course alliterate it and say he is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Those are your options. See, Jesus, without ambiguity, every time he used those words, I am, was claiming to be God. You can't escape that. So you cannot say that Jesus stands on par with history's great moral teachers. Because no great moral teacher goes around saying, oh, and by the way, I am the living God. You can't have the great moral teacher option. You say, well, maybe he said it, but he didn't 
didn't know it wasn't true. Oh, so he's loony. He's crazy, Jesus. He was so cracked in the head that he thought he was God when he wasn't. That's the lunatic option, or as Lewis would put it, the quite mad option. See, the problem with that is the signposts from the relatively low key, but nonetheless pretty spectacular, water into wine, to calling Lazarus forth from the grave and then walking out of his own grave under his own power. You can't have lunatic. Not if you're intellectually honest with what he did. You've one option left in this trilemma. He's Lord. He is exactly what he said he was. Exactly what he proved he was. Co-eternal with the Father, Jesus is God. Not only his co-eternity, but Roman 2, his creativity in all things. Christian, you must give not an inch to those who would assault the biblical truth of creation. There are extraordinarily strong scientific and cosmological philosophical arguments for God as he has revealed himself to be the creator as he has revealed himself to be. Those grand arguments shall wait for another day, but the one who walked out of the grave under his own power claimed for himself the position of the God of the Old Testament who is the creator of all things. That's Jesus. And if I may take it down a bit from the grand cosmological scale to the quite intimate scale, let me tell you what it means that he is the creator of all things. On a quite intimate level, what that means is you exist because you were his idea. He came up with you. And while you may desire to live your life in a self-declared strut of autonomy, you are not apart from him, your creator. And imagine the scale of the treason when a created thing refuses to acknowledge, indeed to bow the knee before its creator. Don't be treasonous. If he created all things, and he did, he created you with spectacular intentionality. If you're here this morning and you're inside a church but outside of Christ, his, his life 
is available as light for you. Which leads us to the Roman three of your outline, his connectedness to those he saves. One of life's least pleasant experiences is stubbing your toe on a piece of furniture in the dark. Now you've probably never done that because you're not so dumb as to move across the room without turning the lights on. I'm sure it's never happened to you. If you stub your toe on a piece of furniture with the lights on and your vision works, well, that's on you. I I can't help you with that. You need to work on your navigational software. But here's the deal. I know where that ottoman is. I know exactly where that ottoman is supposed to live. But suppose some well-meaning person shifts that ottoman about six inches and my little toe catches it in full stride. Oh, the songs of praise that I sing in that moment. (laughs) Darkness will screw you up. See, here's the deal about darkness. Darkness hides detail, right? Some of you have eyes far younger than mine and you laugh at us when we take our flashlights out to read the tiny menu. You laugh all you want, keep it up, keep it up. It's coming for you. Because see, comparatively, darkness hides detail. It's light that brings the detail out. Your darkness hides color. The, the part of your eye, the cells in your retina that, that send those color signals to your brain, those cells are very, very light hungry. And as the light gets dim, the colors fade. And in very dim light, if you can see at all, you see grays. The color's there, but it's not visible without the light. And even if you're not afraid of the dark. I'm not afraid of the dark. All right, let's do a little thought experiment. Suppose for the next two or three nights, long about one or two in the morning, outside your, your home, you hear loud bumping noises right up near your house. You don't know what's going on. It's going on every night. What are you going to install outside your house if you don't already have it? Floodlight! You're not going to put noisemakers out. You're not going to put aroma diffusers out. You don't need your sense of smell enhanced. You need to see what's going on. If you go out to look, first thing you're going to grab is a light. Light brings clarity. Darkness is associated with fear, anxiety, the unknown. Light gives joy and freedom. His life is the light of men. And for those whom he saves, 
He brings us out of darkness into light. The book of Isaiah, in one of the great Christmas passages announcing his arrival, says, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Is your life characterized today by the dingy, colorless, fearful, darkness, oh, Jesus invites you to the crisply detailed, spectacularly colorful, and joyfully revealed life that he provides for all who will hate their sin and turn in faith and love to the Savior. This is the invitation of the empty tomb, which leads to our Roman four, his conquest at the empty tomb. John was not a terribly literate man. He was not a terribly philosophical man. The vocabulary and language of John's writing is among the simplest in the New Testament. Every, everyone who's ever been a first-year seminary student taking first-year Greek has spent most of that first-year Greek year working in the writing of John. He's the most approachable writer. And yet the ideas about which he writes. And when he wrote verse five, the light shines in the darkness. By the way, these, these have an, an emphatic article, the light, not just some light. The darkness, that darkness that has captured the souls of lost people. The light of Christ shines in the darkness of lightness. And that darkness of lostness has not overcome it. Oh, at that moment, you know he's remembering the empty tomb because darkness, he was at the cross. He knew all about darkness's finest hour when it turned pitch dark between noon and three on the day Jesus died on the cross. Darkness's finest hour. But then on Sunday morning, when he won that foot race to the empty tomb and then clambered in behind Peter, saw those discarded grave clothes and believed. What did he believe? That the darkness has not overcome the light. Friend, we may have never met or we may have known each other for years. You may be a long time Christ follower and member of this church, or you may be an Easter morning guest. And if you are, we are so glad you're here. But I gotta love you enough to gently, if I may, oh so gently, take your face and turn it into some truth. Death is coming for you. In the last year or so, COVID has put death in the headlines, but COVID didn't invent death. You were born with a sentence of death on you. 
I said, I don't like thinking about that. Me either. That doesn't make it any less true. Death is coming for you. And after that death, you will stand in the judgment of the one who created you. Unbelief is no defense. Oh, I didn't believe this was going to happen. You were told. You were told it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. So the judgment of your holy righteous creator is coming for you. And outside of Christ, the eternal darkness of condemnation and hell is coming for you. But his empty tomb stands today as an open invitation to eternal life if you will come to Jesus as your Lord.